1: Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler share with you the pathway to becoming a top leader in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler.
2: Welcome to Leadership Development News, hosted by Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Dr. Relly Nadler. I'm Allison Childs with the Center for Creative Leadership. Kathy and Raleigh have helped thousands of people like you become better performers, managers, and leaders with their unique approaches to coaching. Dr. Riley Nadler is a master-level certified executive coach with the International Coaching Federation. A psychologist, corporate leadership, and team trainer, Dr. Nadler brings his expertise and in emotional intelligence to all his keynotes, consulting, coaching, and training. Dr. Nadler's Leaders Playbook provides hundreds of tools and strategies to develop star performers. For more information and free tools by Relly Nadler, go to www.truenorthleadership.com. New York Times bestselling author Kathy Greenberg wins hearts and minds around the world with her internationally acclaimed books on the new science of happiness, including What Happy Companies Know and What Happy Working Mothers Know. Kathy is available for a variety of consulting and coaching programs where you can learn to apply her unique happiness equals profit business formula. For more on Kathy's coaching, tools, consulting, and keynote speaking, go to www.H2CLeadership.com or www.WhatHappyWorkingMothersKnow.com for free tips and downloads.
3: Welcome to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. I'm Dr. Relly Nadler. We have my co-host, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, on the line. And Kathy and I are your leadership development coaches. We have helped thousands of leaders and executives to perform in the top 10%. And one of the uh, focuses that we love to talk about is what's on the cutting edge of neuroscience. Well, today, our show features Dr. Jonathan Schooler. He's going to talk about some fascinating stuff. He pursues research on consciousness, memory, the relationship between language and thought, problem-solving and decision-making, things that we all do as executives and leaders every, every day, moment to moment. He's particularly interested in exploring the phenomena that intersect between the empirical and the philosophical, such as how does the fluctuations in people's awareness of their experience, or as we may see it, the mind-wandering, What? how does mind-wandering um, influence us? and what are some of the ways that we can alter that. So we'll get into some of those aspects, and I'll give you a little bit more about um, Dr. Schooler's bio as we get further into it. But let me tell you about my co-host, Dr. Kathy Greenberg. She uh, coaches leading executives and entire companies on the applications of her proven happiness equals profit strategies. Dr. Greenberg is the co-founder of the renowned executive consultancy H2C, which stands for Happy Companies, Happy People. And she's the author of multiple bestsellers, all-around happiness, and a much-in-demand conference speaker. And you know, Kathy and I always want to bring you the best in current leadership topics, interviews with proven leaders, and provide evidence-based best practices that will help you develop more leaders in your organization. Just like today, we were going to get some of the neuroscience secrets and cutting-edge aspects that you can use for your teams and leaders. And Kathy, welcome to the call.
4: Thanks, Relly, and as many of our listeners know on every show, we really love to teach as well as share, and today I think we're going to have a great show with uh, Dr. Jonathan Schooler, and what we're going to learn in today's program is not only about how to make ourselves better leaders, but to help those around us, because we know leaders are the heartbeat of an organization, but most leaders, including ourselves, sometimes underestimate just how much influence we have over others. And in every one of our shows, we love to teach something small, something small that can have a dramatic improvement, and today we're going to talk about the brain and neuroscience contributions to top performance. And in all of our shows, we like to share something about how to develop leaders using happy company strategies and your sweet spot, really Emotional Intelligence. We know that gender and generational differences have a really profound influence on people's success because what makes us happy doesn't necessarily make our grandparents and the millennial, the younger generation, happy. We also know that work-life practices for managing ourselves and managing our bosses are so important to our success. And uh, I just want to remind everybody that my co-host, Dr. Relly Nadler, is a master level certified executive coach. He is a psychologist and a corporate leadership and team trainer. And Dr. Nadler, is um, he's an expert in emotional intelligence, and he brings that expertise to all of his keynotes, his consulting, coaching, and training. And Dr. Nadler's leadership playbook provides hundreds of tools and strategies to develop star performers, including you. So without further ado, Raleigh, can you talk to our audience a little bit about why leadership is so important and some of the data behind leadership development?
3: Sure, Kathy, we'd be glad to. And leadership development news, obviously, we talk about leaders. Well, why do we talk about leaders? We know from the research that leaders have 50 to 70% influence over the climate of their team. We like to say that they're the emotional thermostat uh, for the team. Emotions are contagious, and the person who's the most contagious for the climate of the team, the the productivity, the focus is the leader. And some of the keys to being a star performer, we would define are being in the top 10%. The top 10% is a tipping point, and when someone gets into the top 10%, they are are twice as productive to the bottom line or to the revenue as organizations in the 89th to 11th percentile. How do you get into the top 10%? A lot of the the topics that we talk about on the show because you can be smart, you can have technical expertise, but it's a lot of these applied skills that may fall under the bigger title of emotional and social intelligence that are the keys that are going to get someone into that top 10%. And you can have training, which is going to help greatly, and that's going to help productivity around 22%. But if you have training along with coaching, both Kathy and I are certified coaches, how do you tailor that training? How do you focus on the person's particular team issues or individual issues? That can get a bump in productivity as high as 88%. And which each and every one of these shows, if you can get one or two things to do differently, this is what we call these uh, micro-initiatives are going to create a macro impact. This is really the key. And if you're interested in more... Information from Dr. Kathy Greenberg, her website is www.h2cleadership.com for her happiness books, tools, speaking keynotes, leadership, and coaching services. If you're interested in more information from me, Dr. Relly Nadler, my website is www.truenorthleadership.com. There's some free emotional intelligence assessments, tools, books, speaking keynotes, leadership, uh, and coaching boot camps. So let me tell you just a little bit more about Dr. Jonathan Schooler. Um, we've had a fair amount of neuroscientists on our show, as, as you know. Um, people have been avid listeners. We've had David uh, Rock. We've had Matthew Lieberman. And in that whole circle of folks, we got a hold of Dr. Jonathan Schooler, who's going to be speaking at the Neuro Leadership Conference, I guess, in Boston, which will be in October. So from that we uh, we dug dug up his contact information and, and he's right here in Santa Barbara where, where I am and really excited about um, having him he's on the cutting edge of, of a lot of a lot of research he's currently on the editorial board of consciousness and, and cognition and social cognitive and affective neuroscience all these big words that he'll help define for us he's the author or co-author of more than 100 papers published in scientific journals or edited volumes, and was the editor of the Scientific Approaches to Consciousness, which was published in 1997. So there's a lot more information, and some of this is on our our website for Voice America. But, Jonathan, let's jump into this because you have a lot to say, and and we want to hear about some of this research and how it may apply to managers and executives. So to start off, we always um, start with this. Who have been some of the most influential people, thinkers in your life, and your career, that's probably
5: shaped... What you where you are today? Well, let's see. I, I have to start by um, acknowledging both of my parents. I'm actually from a long line of psychologists. So mm-hmm. Both my parents are psychologists. My uh, uncle. Uh, uh, so I've got a lot of psychologists in the family. So I was really steeped uh, in psychology uh, all my all my life, and so I, I have a great gratitude of thanks to, to my folks for uh, uh, really getting me interested in thinking about things from a psychological perspective. I'd also say that my uh, graduate advisor, my, my mentor in graduate school, Elizabeth Loftus, uh, was tremendously influential. She's one of the most uh, renowned uh, women psychologists uh, of, of all time. And what was so powerful and uh, compelling uh, for me was the way in which she took situations and, and really reduced them in a way that made them understandable to the public and relevant to the public. So she's done absolutely cutting-edge research on eyewitness testimony and and investigating how it is that um, the basic findings of memory apply in eyewitness situations and presenting her findings in, in court cases and, and really influencing the way uh, that Uh, courts evaluate uh, the evidence of eyewitnesses. And and this ability to distill complicated scientific stories and try to come up with a meaningful, really real-world relevance uh, I thought was tremendously uh, important and is something that I've tried to carry on in my own research. And then the the third uh, most influential person is someone who's been long gone. His name is William James, and he was a, a psychologist and a philosopher uh, who lived around 100 years ago, and he was absolutely amazing. He, his writing on um, on understanding human nature uh, and, uh, and sort of distilling the evidence back then, which the science was much more immature at the time, absolutely astounding. And the way that he did that was by observing his own experience, peering in, and just having this incredibly uh, per- perspective. Amazingly. Uh, insightful perspective on his, on his own experience. And basically, the lesson there is that we can really learn a lot. We can generate very, very powerful and compelling hypotheses about the nature of mind simply by watching our own mind. And that has also informed my research in a major way.
4: Well, Jonathan, it's so exciting to have you because as a behavioral scientist and a physical anthropologist, I'm, I'm already in love with the idea that you love James and the whole idea of human nature. Now, you've been doing some... Fascinating research, and I know we're gonna we're gonna get into it. Um, but can you tell us first how how did you select these topics for for your top research?
5: Well, it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly uh, how it is that oh, certain topics uh, just just grab our uh, attention. I think each one of us, you can sort of imagine we have a little, a little sort of imaginary dial inside our heads which just goes uh, interesting, you know, kind of interesting, extremely interesting, you know, bing, 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 this is super interesting. And um I just I pay attention to that, and um, I, I go to the topics that go bing bing, bing, bing bing. One of the things I found is that the many of the most interesting topics are topics that my colleagues have shied away from, so things like consciousness and creativity uh, these are yeah, mind-wandering, which I'll, I'll be talking about, free will. These are areas where people go, oh, boy, that's just, that's too complicated, that's too intimidating. We, we just can't go there. There's nothing meaningful that we can say about it. And My experience is, is that, that that's typically not the case, that, that those really, really interesting topics, those are the ones where there's going to be some really um, great low-hanging fruit. So I tend to find myself wandering into areas that have been ignored because people were scared they were going to be too too murky or, or too loose.
4: And, Jonathan? and uh, I want you to just hold that thought for just one second, and we're going to come right back after this break. You're listening to Leadership Development News, so don't go away.
1: Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you heard about sustainable investing? Simply put, it's investing in companies that commit to a resource to enhance the quality of life so it is not depleted or permanently damaged. And that means that resource will be around to benefit for the future. Join host Kara McMillan for Demand More, a program that will take you behind the scenes of sustainable investing. You'll learn to create wealth and feel great about it. In this economic period, you can lead, follow, or run away. It's your choice. Tune in Tuesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers, with your hosts, Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions for these noted experts, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. Today, we're talking with Dr.
3: Jonathan Schooler about some of his research in neuroscience. He mentioned just during the break because we want to talk about one topic that he said some of his research is in the book Blink, one of my favorite books. A lot of folks on the line have heard it, but around decision making and problem solving, every executive is doing that day in, day out, moment to moment. And so now we'll be able to hear some of your research, Jonathan. What can you tell us about decision making and problem solving that you found?
5: Well. Uh, one of the uh, things that we always struggle with is, is to what degree can we trust our intuitions? Is, is intuition even really uh, a meaningful concept? Do we always necessarily have to have every single explanation for why it is that we uh, hold the particular uh, views that we do? And, and this, is a, this is a complicated uh, topic and, and one for which I, c- I can't offer uh, absolutely uh, fail-safe uh, rules of thumb. But what I can say is, is that my research and the research of of many others, indicates that there are many situations in which individuals can hold genuine, authentic, useful, and important intuitions where they may not have the full capacity to explain the basis Mm -hmm. of those intuitions. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit of of the research that that we've done that uh, sort of supported this. Um, in, uh, in, in one study, uh, we had people um, taste various different strawberry jams. Now, these were people who weren't really jam experts, and they were just trying to evaluate them, give their best sort of a uh, sense of, you know, which, what's, what's the quality. one. And, of course, this is what, um, what many people in leadership situations have to do is they have to assess quality, and they have to sort of have a sense of what's, what's going to be the product that's really going t- to fly. And it may be the case that they have a sense, this is, the, this is the one, I just really have a good feeling about this particular one, but they may or may not be able to articulate exactly what the basis of that intuition is. And, and we found that under some situations, um, if you had people, again, in the strawberry jam tasting experiment, people tasted the jams, and then in one condition, we asked them just to rate the jams, and then in another condition, we had them analyze why they felt the way they did about it. So here they're sort of really going through and analytically trying to decompose their experience. And then we correlated their ratings with the ratings of consumer report experts. These are people who have really been trained mm-hmm. uh, in, in um, evaluating jams. And what we found is that when people just rated them, just went with their gut, so to speak, that their ratings were highly correlated with the ratings of the experts. But when they tried to analyze, when they tried to decompose and put into words experiences that they didn't really have the words to access, it actually messed them up. They're their ability to come up with the ratings consistent with the experts was was reduced.
4: So, Jonathan, it, in essence, you're saying when people followed their own inner thoughts and feelings, they were more successful because they were authentic?
5: Well, they're a, better able to get in touch with mm-hmm. their authentic feelings. That Under some situations, when you analyze and reflect, you can actually lose touch with that gut intuition. If, if the gut intuition is not represented to you in an explicit verbal manner, then there are going to be situations where when you overanalyze, uh, you're going to actually set yourself back. In another study, we showed people various different uh, posters. And these were both sort of impressionist posters and also these uh, like the cute animal posters with the kitten, you know, dangling and sort of expression like hang in their baby or something like that. And we asked them to um, look at the posters and rate them And then in one condition, again, we had them analyze why they felt the way they did about it. And in another condition, uh, they uh, just chose it without analyzing why they felt the way they did. And then we contacted them a week later and asked them, so how are you liking that poster uh, we gave you? Uh, Did you put it up on your wall? And what we found is that the people who analyzed why they felt the way they did, they chose posters that they were ultimately less happy with, and they're actually less likely to put the poster up on their wall. So they, they somehow lost touch with yeah. that intuitive sense of what they really liked.
3: Interesting. So it's kind of that, and I know you've some of your research looked at kind of inspiration and, and all that. And let me just ask you this, because I've I read this, and I, I think Goldman talks about that, that intuition is about 80% accurate. Now, I don't know if that's a number you would agree with or what you found, but that's something that, I, that I've read and, and repeated.
5: I mean, it's it's very hard to, um, to p- put a number on it, but th- what I like about um, the 80% number, whether or not it, it, that's exactly right, is that it communicates two things that I think um, are right. One thing that it communicates is that intuitions uh, very often are accurate and that it's important right. to uh, give them due heat, uh, due... Uh, Appreciation. You don't want to dismiss an intuition just because you can't fully explain uh, oh. its basis. At the same time, you want to also recognize that they're not necessarily right, and right. that um, uh, the, just because you have an intuition is not, not a fail-safe thing. And of course, people vary in um, mm-hmm. their intuitive uh, abilities, and... With expertise, particularly uh, expertise where you have a lot of experience uh, in a situation, uh, those types of experience can lead to a more and more uh, accurate uh, intuition.
3: So, so what you're saying is using your intuition, the 80% accuracy of intuition is, seems about right. I
5: mean, I, um, what, I, what I would say is, is that uh, it, it captures the two essential okay. points, which is that intuition is often right, right but not always.
3: Okay. okay. Good, and uh, I was yeah, just saying, is, you're probably using important. your intuition to come up with that, that response. Yeah, That's exactly.
5: good. Okay.
4: Now, um, so besides, I guess, gaining a lot of weight from tasting the strawberry jam, what, what was the, you know, the I guess there were other components of this research that you also looked at?
5: Yeah, well, we've done we've done a lot of follow-up studies to I- examine the other situations in which this um, phenomenon, we refer to it, by the way, as something as verbal overshadowing. And basically the idea mm. here is, is that there are some situations where language can interfere with the ability to accurately communicate your intuitive knowledge. And we've explored this now in a host of different domains. For example, we find that when people describe the appearance of a face, under some situations, it can actually interfere with their later ability to recognize it. Um, but it also really depends on the verbal expertise that people bring to the situation. So faces are a good example because we have a great capacity to recognize faces, but none of us, with the possible exception of police artists, are particularly good at describing a face. But we've also looked at this in domains where people vary in their verbal expertise, such as wine tasting, right? Wine tasting you have people who vary not only in their palate, but also in their ability to describe that palate. And there, what we found is is that if you take someone who has experience but doesn't have an ability to really talk about it, then they're vulnerable to verbalization. When they describe the taste of a wine, they have a harder time recognizing it than somebody who didn't describe it. Whereas a wine expert who's been trained to talk about it, then all of a sudden language has a very different relationship to them. Then the language becomes very useful, uh, or at least it doesn't interfere with their ability Mm. to recognize it.
3: Well, one of the things I'm interested in, what what part of the research in Blink was some of the stuff that uh, Gladwell took from you?
5: Yeah, so Gladwell talks about this, uh, much of the the work that I just mentioned. He talks about the verbal overshadowing finding and how, because Blink is really all about the idea that these gut judgments uh, can have um, authenticity. And so these kinds of findings are, uh, are described in Blink. He also talks about research that we've done on creativity.
3: Yeah. So you know, I was gonna. I mean, we have a, some questions here, but I thought, as far as our audience, what let's talk about the creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, what what has been some of the research on creativity that you found? You know, uh, what some of the best environments, or how can someone best be creative?
5: Sure. Well, one thing that's really important to creativity, and this is this is not research that I've done myself, but I, it's really important to emphasize it at the outset is intrinsic motivation. What researcher, researchers have found, for example. Uh, A woman uh, by the name of Amabile did research Mm -hmm. um, in which they gave people the opportunity to make uh, collages, and they either just had them uh, do it because... um they, uh, for, for no, no reward, or else they were given a reward for doing it. And what they found is, is that, um, when people were just doing it because they were spontaneously interested in it, it was framed in that way, uh, that they actually were more creative, uh, than when they were given a reward. And, and in other cases, just by framing the same task, by framing, say, um, Uh, people in terms of the reasons why they do things. Either frame in terms of this is something that I enjoy doing that I I find rewarding versus I do it as a living. Um, And they are more creative when they're focusing on that intrinsic element. And I think this is really important. I think that that in in all sorts of situations, the degree that you can get people really focusing in on the intrinsic interest of what it is that they're working on as opposed to uh, just thinking about how it's going to produce a product, that that intrinsic interest that, that is just inherently a topic that uh, you find exciting, that's going to create and promote creativity.
3: So that's, that's huge. Let me just say a word about that. Kathy and I both know in our work, really working on strengths and trying to get people to identify their strengths. So what we're saying, let's say, as an end product of being creative, the more they can focus on a strength, something that they really enjoy, they have passion about, they're going to be more creative then get rewarded extrinsically for doing
5: something. Exactly. It, it basically, what's happening is, is, to the degree that you're working on a strength, to the degree that you're working on something, that, and, and, and typically what strengths are is the things that you find inherently right. interesting, the things that really naturally push your buttons. And so if you can, if you can get yourself into a, a career where you're working on something that you find uh, inherently rewarding, and if you can hire employees who are you know, genuinely jazzed about the topic that they're working on, that is going to be a formula for greater creativity.
4: Now, one of the things, Jonathan, that you mentioned is language and how once people get inside the language because they have an understanding and an interpretation that matches their own mental model, their own thinking about something, it's easier. And we've been talking about words that some of our audience may actually not understand, like intrinsic and extrinsic. Can you talk a little bit about what those words mean?
5: Sure. So if um, I gave a kid a book and um, I, I, I a, and asked him to read it because he, um, I thought he'd enjoy reading it, that would be intrinsic motivation. He's reading the book because he just really wants to know what happens, right? He's just curious about the book. But if I gave the kid a book and said, I'd like you to read this because I'm going to give you $5 when you finish it, that's going to be extrinsic motivation. He's, he's now reading the book not because he necessarily cares about uh, what's in it, but rather because... Um, he's, he's been reinforced for it. And what's been found is if you do that, what will happen is at, both kids will read the book, but who, who reads the next book? The kid who is, who is encouraged right. to read the first book uh, because it would be interesting. If the kid reads the first book for $5, the next time he's not going to want to read a book on his own because he reads books. Why? Because people pay him for it. And so it, it's this, the extrinsic reward can really... Um, Undermine uh, people's ability to 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 do things for for spontaneous reasons, and again, of course, you know we all have to to make a living, but to the degree that we can really get people focused on the the personal in. Interest that they find in something, as opposed to just that it's going to get them something else. It's basically, you know, the ends versus the means. Do you consider a particular activity a um, an ends in itself, or are you simply doing it in order to accomplish something else?
4: Perfect. Well, we're going to pause on that note, Jonathan. We're going to come right back, and we're going to talk about mind wandering, and that's one of the subjects we want to learn more about from you while we have you. So don't go away. You're listening to Leadership Development News
0: For free tips and downloads, visit Kathy's award winning book site, WhatHappyWorkingMothersKnow.com. Or for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results for your business, visit Kathy Greenberg at H2CLeadership.com. That's H2CLeadership.com.
1: Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
3: to give you some tips about being a top performer, either you or, or for your folks. We've got a couple of topics that, we, that he's an expert on, mind-wandering, Kathy mentioned. And just before we move there, any last words about creativity that may be helpful for our listeners?
5: Yeah, there are a couple more things I wanted to mention. One is that this idea of verbal overshadowing that I discussed before in the case of... Um, describing jams and wines and faces and so on. It also can apply to creativity. In one study, we gave people um, these insight problems. These are the kind of problems where there's sort of an aha solution that sort of pops out of the blue. And In one situation, we encourage people to think out loud while solving them. In the other case, we just let them do it silently. And What we found is that um, whereas for logical problems, thinking out loud was not a problem at all, when people tried to solve these insight problems, thinking out loud trying to put their thoughts into words, actually interfered with their ability under some circumstances to accurately reach a solution. And so this suggests that sometimes um, language is a two-edged sword, and and while it's very useful under many circumstances to, to think through ideas, sometimes it's better to just sort of be quiet and listen in the back of one's mind for solutions that may be a sort of percolating back there, where if we're just chatting away, chattering away, we, uh, we won't pick up on them. And it's important to notice that this is also relevant uh, in to industry and, and to leadership situations. There's a huge amount of, uh, you know, push on sort of group thinking and, and getting people together in groups and, and talking about things. And, and that can be very useful, but it's also important to know that when you do that, that's a situation where verbal overshadowing is likely to happen, that when everybody is is, is talking out loud, that they may be interfering with coming up with uh, solutions. And so oftentimes, in addition to complement this type of group thing, it's also good to have people uh, go off and just sort of uh, quietly uh, think about uh, these these issues and, and pay attention to them when the, they may just sort of pop into mind. That Language is very useful, but there's some situations where it can even be disruptive to the most valuable thing of all, which is our creative essence.
3: Well, and one of the things, and Kath, let me just jump in for a second, sure. is, is that extrovert introverts we deal with that a lot in organizations and i think what you're saying gives underscores to really let especially the people more introverted give them that time to think because if you're forcing them to respond too soon you're you're taking away their creativity
5: yes
4: well it's not only that but um and i'd love your comment on this jonathan i've noticed in my work with organizations where people are inherently introverts that they either have to become like you said, extrinsically motivated extroverts, and it's not comfortable for them. So it takes them twice as much energy Mm. to actually do a creative exercise when they're in the presence of other people all the time, and that we mismanage them often by making them attend meetings that cause them more stress.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's really important to appreciate that different people are going to be in their element uh, in, in different situations. And if you try to Fit everybody, you, know, you know, all the different shapes into a particular um, round uh, hole, it, it, it's, it's, there's going to be mismatches in lots of situations. In general, giving people the opportunity to uh, go back and, 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 and generate ideas uh, on their own, that can be a very, very sort of brainstorming, individualized brainstorming. That can be a, a very, very useful Um, uh, technique, and what it will do is make sure that some of the quieter people who actually have very good ideas are able to get their ideas out there. Otherwise, what's going to happen is is you're going to have the agenda carried by the most vocal, extroverted people who are not necessarily going to be the people with the best solutions. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, we want to talk a little bit about some of your research around mind-wandering, and I know just in looking at some of the articles you had sent me, uh, maybe you can first start, you know, how often do people's mind wander and what's the benefit? And then you also have a couple different types of mind wandering.
5: Sure. Well, mind wandering is really a, a, an example of, of a domain that um, I think was grossly uh, understudied uh, uh, in the field. There have been a couple of very, very important uh, researchers in the area, followed fellow by the name of Jerome Singer, uh, Yale and Leonard Giambra and, and, uh, Klinger and a few others. But if you consider how often people mind wandering, it's just amazing how little attention as a whole the field is giving to it. Estimates suggest that people are mind wandering somewhere between a third to half of their, uh, half of their days. Mm. Um, and this is just, uh, you know, a huge amount of, of time. And um, let, me, let me sort of explain what mind-wandering is. Mind-wandering is, well, let me back up a step further. Mm-hmm. The larger category is something what I would refer to as daydreaming, which is simply where your mind is not in the present but is rather focusing uh, on sort of internal musings unrelated to the situation surrounding you. So, if you're driving along and thinking about that uh, summer vacation plan, or if you're in a meeting and not attending to the meeting but thinking about uh, the the date you've got coming up, uh, those would all be uh, examples of of daydreaming. Now, mind wandering is a particular kind of daydreaming in which you're, you've got a, a primary task that you're supposed to be doing, right? So if, um, if you're in a lecture and you're supposed to be paying attention and your mind is thinking about and you're daydreaming, then that would be mind-wandering. One of the areas where I've um, done uh, a particular amount of research in mind-wandering is mind-wandering while reading, and mind-wandering while reading is, I think, a particularly interesting example uh, for a couple of reasons. Let's say you're in a boring lecture and uh, uh, you've, just, you've just come to the conclusion that you're just not getting anything out of that lecture. It, it, it happens sometimes. We just we find ourselves in a place where it's just not very productive paying attention. In that case, it makes great sense to um, do a flight of fancy away from the here and now into thinking about something uh, completely unrelated. You're not getting much out of the lecture, so you might as well think about something else. But what about the case of reading? Is there ever a situation in which it makes sense to continually move your eyes across the page, getting further and further away from where it was that you were last paying attention, uh, and thinking about something else, that's a situation which there's never a time when it makes sense to mind-wander like that while reading. If if you're going to mind-wander while you're reading, you should close the book and just think about whatever it is that you'd like to think about. And yet, for some reason, we continue to mind wander, even though everybody knows that you can't carry on two completely unrelated trains of thought uh, at mm-hmm. once. And this raises the really interesting question, why, if it's so problematic uh, to mind wander while reading, do people, uh, people do it?
3: And so how often do people do it? And then you also have an interesting thing around alcohol and mind wandering.
5: Right so um people mind wander um it seems to be uh, around a third of the time they're just not in the here and now they're daydreaming about something uh completely unrelated to um the situation uh, at hand so that's, and, that's, that's that's normal right but then how about when they're reading right so even even when they're reading we're finding like uh 10 to 20% of the time on the material that we give them, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're, they're mind-wandering. And, of course, when you're mind-wandering while you're reading, you're just losing the, you're losing the argument. And so the more you mind-wander, the worse the comprehension performance. One of the things we find is that mind-wandering while reading is one of the single best predictors of overall comprehension performance. Those people who are mind-wandering uh, mm-hmm. are really uh, not getting all the material out. But this gets um, to this point about the different kinds of mind-wandering and also to the issue of um, uh, alcohol and, and also to the explanation for why is it that people continue to mind-wander even though they understand that this is not
0: a productive thing to do,
5: at least in the case of reading. I, I want to emphasize that I think mind-wandering is tremendously uh, useful under the right circumstances. Okay, so here's the, here's the basic idea. When people are mind-wandering when they're reading, they haven't noticed it. And this I think is really a profound point. You'd think that the one thing that we should really know where, understand is what's going on in our own head. If nothing else, we should know um, what's going on, what's occupying our mind at any particular moment in time. But to the contrary, what we find is that people regularly fail to notice that their minds have wandered. They're reading along, and then suddenly they're oh my God, I've done it again. I've just been reading along. I hadn't noticed that I was thinking about something completely unrelated to the text. And so this is a concept that I think, again, is very relevant to um, emotional intelligence. It's very uh, important to leadership, to, uh, to performance in almost every situation, and it's a concept that I refer to as meta-awareness, and it's the idea that only periodically do we check in on our own minds and go, what's going on in my mind right now? And when we do that, we um, oftentimes notice that what's going on in our mind is not what we would have expected, so we check in while we're reading. We go, what's going on in my mind right now? And we go, oh, look at this. I'm not reading. I'm actually thinking about this completely unrelated thing. And so it seems that this capacity for meta-awareness to check in and ask yourself, am I thinking about what it is that I wanted to be thinking about, that that seems to be very, very important. In our research, we find that when people are um, meta-aware of their mind wandering, when they catch it themselves, that that's not really that problematic, that people who regularly catch their minds wandering, that they uh, do not show reading deficits. It's the people who mine water without noticing it Mm -hmm. that is really problematic. And this brings us to this issue of alcohol. So the way we study mind-wandering is we bring people into the laboratory and we um, ask them to read a material and then press a button every time they notice themselves mind-wandering. So if you just press a button saying you were mind-wandering, well, clearly you notice that you're mind-wandering. That's why you press the button. So that, that's in a measure of what we would call meta-awareness of mind-wandering. But then, in addition, at random intervals, and we probe them. We flash them a beep and we or we flash them a, a screen that says, just now was your mind-wandering. And what we find is that we regularly catch people mind wandering before they've caught it themselves. This is what we call probe caught mind wandering. It's the mind wandering that's gone on below the radar. And what we've found is is that it's this unnoticed mind wandering that's problematic for reading. Now, we do the same experiment, but we introduce alcohol into it. We give people. A beverage which they're told is alcohol, and in some cases it really contains alcohol. In other cases it's just a placebo. It smells like alcohol, but there's nothing there. And and interestingly, people uh, will feel like they're drunk when they drink these placebo um, alcohol drinks. Anyhow, we then give them the same task of um, mind-wandering with either uh, both self-catching it themselves and also us randomly probing them. And what we find is that alcohol packs a double punch. On the one hand, um, it reduces people's ability to notice that their mind is wandering. So alcohol reduces metawareness. And this may be one of the reasons why we enjoy drinking it, because we're not so self-conscious. But on the other hand, it increases on um, the mind's natural tendency to wander. So here we have these people who their mind-wandering constantly, but they're noticing it less often. This also may explain why alcohol is so problematic for driving, because when people are driving, they aren't noticing that they've completely lost track of the road. And critically... Um, They are able to appraise their ability, their meta-awareness, to realize how incapacitated they are.
4: Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to pause on that thought. This is a really interesting study. We're going to go to a break, and we're going to come right back. This is Leadership Development News, so don't drink any alcohol.
3: we're getting a lot of tips about mind-wandering and focus from Dr. Jonathan Schooler from UC Santa Barbara. And before we went to the break, just to summarize and we'll, we'll hear a little more about the mind-wandering. With a little bit of alcohol, um, it'll decrease uh, the meta awareness you know, that my mind's wandering, but it'll also increase the ability or, or increase the frequency of mind-wandering. Is that right, Jonathan? And then you yeah. also want to talk about maybe? Well put, Yeah,
5: I, I did want to. Uh, I don't want to just bad now with mind wandering yeah. and, and particularly daydreaming. I, I think it's important to recognize that that mind wandering um, constitutes really one of the most remarkable. Um, capacities and accomplishments of the human brain. You know, most animals are are largely stuck in the present, but our minds are able to take off and imagine distant futures and and pasts long ago and and alternative pasts and alternative futures and engage in uh, amazingly abstract thought. And this is all the domain of of mind-wandering. And so it's important to recognize that, that, that it's not just something to be avoided, that, in fact, under the right circumstances, it can be a tremendously useful We did a study uh, recently, which we're still in the the process of uh, of getting published, in which we uh, had participants uh, engage in uh, relatively non-demanding task, and we looked to see uh, how often they mind wandered, and again we also looked to see uh, their frequency with which they noticed themselves mind wandering. And then we also looked at uh, their creativity on uh, several different creativity measures. And what we found is that the most creative individuals were not the ones who never mind wandered. To the contrary, the creative individuals were ones who tended to mind wander, but a particular kind of mind wandering. They were the ones who mind wandered but noticed themselves, caught themselves mind wandering. And if you think about it, this really makes a lot of sense. When are you going to have a creative idea? It's going to be in those periods of um, when you're not in the present, you're letting your mind sort of go free. But if you have a creative idea and you don't notice that you've had the creative idea, it'll come and go and never get put to use. And so it's really this Finding a balance uh, between uh, letting one's mind wander, but also checking in and, and reaping what the mind has found during its wanderings, uh, that makes it so effective.
3: And That's one of the things I think Kathy, you and I do with, with when we do coaching, is encourage mm-hmm. them to get that reflective kind of that strategic mind wandering reflective time. Turn off, turn off the music. Don't get on the cell phone if you're driving, and just let your mind wander. You need that,
4: right? And I think what what Jonathan is really helping me understand, and I hope our listeners, is. Not always focusing on the situation at hand is constructive. Right. In fact, that's, Jonathan, when you say you, sometimes you can be destructive because the, um, the consciousness about something that's negative can prevent you from having a creative thought. Exactly. And I, I, th- I
5: think you know, giving your mind a little freedom to roam is really a good idea. So a couple of things, Jonathan.
3: I know you've,
5: you've done something.
3: We're not giving you just time. You've got so much to share. We may have to have you back sometime. But one of the things around consciousness and this thing around free will, we probably got about uh, nine, ten more minutes to go.
5: Yeah. Well, I, I love the topic of, uh, of free will. I mean, it, it's, the thing about free will that's so striking is there's such a disparity between the worldview worldview currently in uh, the scientific realm and the worldview of, of all the rest of us, that's just so striking because, um, and, you know, it's not just science, but like the law, morality, so much of our uh, lives is uh, centered around the idea that each one of us have the capacity and the responsibility to make uh, decisions that we can hold ourselves responsible, that we can hold other people responsible for. And yet, what you find in science, particularly in neurosciences of late, is this increasing claim that... That free will is just an illusion that we, that we really don 't have any uh, responsibility it 's not just the person who has some terrible brain tumor that causes them to do something badly and we relieve we them of responsibility for that everybody is doing things just on the basis of the way that they were hardwired or their environment and so ultimately we can 't hold anybody responsible for anything mm-hmm. this, this is a, uh, a very very predominant perspective in in neuroscience right now. My own view is that this is a situation where science has gone a little bit ahead of itself. It's basically attempted to make metaphysical claims about, about the fundamental nature of the universe, the fundamental nature of, of time, causality, uh, spirit, and so on, that I really don't think it's got the uh, license to do, and it's, it's sort of using... Um, Science is being used as a, as a pedestal for uh, promoting uh, scientists' particular metaphysical views uh, prematurely. And, and you might say, well, look, everyone's entitled to their opinion. What harm does it do if scientists are just expressing you know, their, their opinion? And, and I think it's fine for scientists to express their opinion, but it's important that they express it as an opinion and not in the same way that they try to communicate science as, as, as fact. And the dangers of this, the dangers of um, uh, overstating the case, can be um, well seen by a study uh, that my colleague Kathleen Voss and I did, in which we looked at what was the impact of exposing people to this sentiment that uh, they have no free will, that they're just a pack of neurons. And so we had people read an excerpt from the Nobel Prize-winning uh, uh, biologist Francis Crick, the discoverer, co-discoverer with Watson of DNA, uh, in which he says, um, uh, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. Uh, You have no free will. Uh, He doesn't say it in so many words. He basically says, you're a glorified billiard ball. Get used to it. And (laughs) then we gave them the opportunity to cheat. We gave them a mental arithmetic task where there was a way in which they could do it much easier simply by cheating. And what we found is that when we had told people that they or that Francis Crick, this, you know, the discoverer of DNA, had sort of worked it out and that there's no such thing as free will, that he did two things, both of which are somewhat surprising. The first thing is people actually changed their minds about free will. They were less likely to believe in free will After they heard this thing. So what scientists say really has an impact. And then the second thing is is they were more likely to cheat. They were more likely to um, to take advantage of this paradigm and and, and not actually do the calculations. In a follow-up study, we found they were more likely to overpay themselves. And subsequently, other colleagues, in particular Roy Baumeister, has found that people are more likely to be aggressive, they engage in less prosocial behavior, and that a belief in free will uh, seems to have all sorts of uh, very, very valuable um, uh, benefits to it. And so, I'm I'm wary of my colleagues uh, telling uh, the public. That, uh, that they're just a pack of neurons, that they have no free will, when, um, in fact, there seems to be this uh, this great benefit. Let me just mention one other thing. There is one way in which um, telling people that they don't have free will does seem to have a, a bright side, too, and that is they're more forgiving of other people. So we find that they, mm. um, yeah they people are more forgiving, but that's because they're not holding other people responsible, nor are they holding themselves responsible.
3: So to kind of summarize that when people are told that they don't, have free will, you found that they they exercise more free will with cheating and some of the other
5: experiments. (laughs) Well, it's an interesting way of putting it. One thing you could say is that when you tell people that they don't have free will, they actually exert their free will by doing what they really want to do, which is to cheat and to steal and to be right. <laughs> to, to so, be bad. Yeah, it, it, it's certainly uh, ironic. But I think the way that they're thinking about it, yeah. you know, the more researchers on this, is that don't blame me. I don't have any control, so you can't hold me responsible, so I'm just going to do what I want. Okay. And, so
3: so
4: and it's just, the
5: rationale
4: that is it's exactly. not really. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think, when, I think when free will doesn't work, then people will tend to rationalize a failure.
5: Right. Exactly. And, you know, I think this is also, we haven't gone in this direction yet, but I think this is also very relevant to uh, addictions. Um, which, of course, is also going to be a big issue uh, in, in the corporate world because addictions is just so, so prevalent. Right. But when, when people, this disease model of addictions, when people think of, a, of an addiction as just a disease, what they're basically doing is, is they're giving up the, the sense of uh, their own capacity for personal control. And so okay. when, when people buy into this pure disease model of, uh, of addictions, um, then they're losing that notion that, in fact, I'm, I'm the ultimate arbiter of my behaviors. I don't have to do this. If I'm, if I decide to give in to this addiction, it's, it was my choice. They give that up when they buy into this purely deterministic right. model. And I think you really, it's so essential, so valuable to human nature to um, to believe in your own capacity to take control of your mm-hmm.
3: life. So it brings up some fascinating uh, stuff that you're talking about. And I know when Kathy and I are dealing with executives, it, at least what it applies is when they're saying, "Well, I don't know. That's just the way I am." Yeah. And, and we're usually on the change side, the free will side, let's make some of these micro-initiatives, and you often get someone who says, well, no, that's just the way I am, sorry. You know, once I'm over 40, I'm not changing. We
5: we can, we can all change. Every one of us, um, with with the right attitude, is, is, is capable of um, developing uh, new habits. And it's always a good idea if you want to... Um, develop some new habit, to be as absolutely specific as possible about what it is you're going to do and when. So let's say you decided uh, you really want to be, um, I'll take take my example, you really want to write more every day. Um, there, there's something known as an implementation intention, which is basically to to come up with a very, very concrete um Scenario under when you're going to do that thing. So if you say, I want to write more every day, that's not unlikely to do anything. But if you say, every morning at 10 a.m. at the breakfast mm-hmm. table or wherever it is at this particular place, I'm going to write, that seems to be much more likely to produce positive effects. So there was a study done in which they did this with undergraduates. They were told to write an essay about how they spent um, right. their Christmas break and either were given the opportunity or just said, We want you to do this during Christmas break, or else uh, tell us where and when you're going. Going to do it. And they found that the people who generated this implementation intention were um, more than twice as likely to actually come back with writing an essay. So it's so useful. You can uh, get yourself to do new tricks, but it's really important to be specific about where and when you think you're going to do them.
3: Well, so Dan and Chip Heath talk about this in one of their books, and they call this an action trigger. And I think that they use that same study about doing, doing homework or doing writing during the mm-hmm. holiday. So, so what's the action trigger? I'm just saying that for our listeners. You know, I'm going I'm to take time to reflect at, uh, Monday at between 9 and 10 o'clock, and I'm gonna, that's when I'm going to do my planning whatever.
5: Very, very useful strategy.
4: It's amazing that, you know, just by taking a few minutes to think, about one's own intentions and then to plan it just like we do a meeting or a doctor's Mm -hmm. appointment or a luncheon that we really can get so much more out of our own ability to be creative
3: so jonathan we haven't really hit consciousness and i think maybe what we should do is if you know you're available at some time down the line some months you know we'd love to have you come back because it looks like you got some great great uh studies and research that would be is just very practical and, and helpful for our listeners
5: I, I do, this has been a lot of fun. I'd be delighted to do it any time.
3: Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, Jonathan, maybe just give us your website if people want to go. I know you got a couple articles and things that people can download from there.
5: Uh, yeah, I, I'm actually. I have to apologize. Our, our website is, is currently uh, under construction uh, okay. at, at the moment, so you'll, you'll have to email me uh, directly. Uh, my um, email address is schooler s c h o o l e r at psych p s y c h dot dot edu, and I'll uh, just tell me the general topic area, and I'll be happy to send you uh, some uh, some papers right. on that topic.
3: Well, Jonathan, thanks so much. This, is, this has been great, and. Um, Useful information, exactly what we want to be able to present on Leadership Development News. So tune in again next week, and this is Leadership Development News, signing
1: off for now. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you gain some great ideas and inspiration on how to elevate your leadership skills. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Business Channel.